Okay, Under the Sun listeners, we are back at the Art and Science of Coaching. Got my co-host, Zach Gregg, with me. Zach, good to see you today. How are you? Oh, doing well. How are you? All right, doing fantastic. All right, so you are, you're back in Roanoke, Virginia, correct? I am, yep. Right. So I'm... 33-hour drive that got me back here. Well, I am uh, at home on the mountain in uh, Beach Mountain, North Carolina. So we are not together, but uh, here we are. We are recording another episode of Art and Science of Coaching, and uh, we're also recording this on Zoom. And uh, want to remind and encourage everybody to go to our YouTube channel. It's the Art and Science of Coaching. We'll include that in the show notes today for you to link to. And as a reminder, the under the under the sun. Uh, podcast is on every major podcast platform from uh, Apple to uh, Stitcher to iHeartRadio to Spotify to if you whatever it is it's probably you're going to find it on your favorite platform so uh, we're everywhere and you have every chance to listen to the show but the YouTube channel something new that we're doing we thought as we're doing this art and science we would take some video and, and post it up there and we've already got the first two episodes of the art and science of coaching there so check those out we covered some great topics went pretty deep into those topics and and we have another one today but I want to kick off and say all right so you've been in Tucson how, you were there for almost a month, weren't you? I was there for a month, yeah. And uh, the main reason behind that was you get a, a discount on the Verbo if you go for a full month. <laughs> All right, that makes more sense. So, you know, Tucson is a is a favorite destination for cyclists, especially elite pro cyclists. Uh, you know, now that you've been there, had you been there before? I have not been there before, no. Okay, so first time. Uh, what is it like for those who have not have been to Tucson? What's it like in Tucson? What's the training like? And you know, why would why would they want to consider going there? Right. So Tucson, Arizona is in the desert. And so being in the desert, um, you know, near the I think we were what, sixty miles from the Mexico border. Um, so we're nice and, and south. So the weather is good. Most days it was in the sixties or the seventies was a high. Um, and it does not rain very often. Um, so both of those, um, are, you know, beneficial, especially during the, the early months of the year, or in my case, December, where most of the country is either getting snow or cold rain or something like that. Um, and combine that with the fact that Tucson has a bike lane on every road and there is over a hundred miles of bike path circling the city and like surrounding areas. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a cycling destination. The accessibility in Tucson and the fact that you can ride outside in good weather every day, um, I think really lends itself to uh, good winter training. Um, and really because of those bike paths and all the infrastructure they have, the community there is pretty amazing. Um, I went a little bit early compared to when most people do just because of got to be back in Banner Elk on uh, January the 8th, somewhere around that because school starts on the 11th. Um, so a lot of people will go from the first of the year to like the middle of March. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the training is fantastic. The uh, everybody expects cyclists to be every everywhere, which is a little bit different than on the East coast where cars and cyclists kind of sneak up on each other. Um, and then of course, you know, in, 
in other years, there's tons of people there that you can ride with, um, which always makes the training go a little bit quicker conversation, catching up on, uh, how everybody's season went, that kind of thing. Well, you had a couple of your project echelon teammates to come and visit, uh, sporadically through that and also had a couple of kids from the Lee's McRae team there. Uh, so I'm curious, I guess the one thing I've heard is the shootout. Did you get to do the shootout or had it started yet? Uh, if you had, if you did, what was that like? So the shootout is canceled right now. So it, I believe it has been for, I don't know, five, six months. Um, there was, you know, some of the local folks were doing their own version of it, you know, kind of starting at the same time, small group, that kind of thing. Um, we rode the route, but we did not participate. So, you know, five was, was plenty of total cyclists between the two project echelon guys the two Lee's McRae guys and me, um, that we didn't feel like we needed to really ride with anybody else. Um, we actually, our, our B and B was next door to uh finn and leo gullickson so we saw them we rode with them one day and then they were off to you know greener pastures they went to california or something like that even even better riding than tucson Mm -hmm. but um aside from that yeah we kept to ourselves um you know five five is a good number you know i mean tucson's pretty flat so you don't want to sit in the draft too long you lose that training benefit you don't burn as many calories i love rides where it's an odd number because that, then I can sit on the back and ah, just like enjoy the enjoy the ride in the back and uh, you know you know me I don't I don't tend to talk a whole lot during rides anyway so it's even better so I'm like by myself and so that's cool all right so <laughs> the big uh, the big uh, aside from the shootout you got Mount Lemon and I know you uh, went yep. up it uh, more than once more than once what explain to listeners what Mount Lemon is all about yeah so Mount Lemon is. 24 miles to the, from the base to the summit. And uh, it is a steady 4 or 5% grade for most of the climb. And it takes you from about 3,000 to about 8,500 feet elevation. Um, and it's fabulous. Yeah, it's right outside of town. It's very well trafficked um, by cyclists. So everybody expects you to be there. Um, the, the steady grade is perfect for intervals or if, you know, you got a four hour ride in about three and a half hours, you're running out of route. Uh, you just go hit, hit Mount Lemon and, uh, it's, it's a really good way to finish a ride. So having that in your back pocket, there's, there's no excuse to not do your, your strength endurance at, at 50 RPM or whatever you need to do. It's, it's a really nice tool for that. Um, we did try to stay off of it, um, as much as possible, uh, you know, because it is the trap, right? It's very convenient to just go, up to you know halfway point or wherever it starts getting a little bit cold and then just do reps up and down mount lemon and you know the the benefit of living in banner elk is we get plenty of climbing all year so taking advantage of the flatness um being able to really stay with pressure on the pedals for the whole five hour ride um involves avoiding mount lemon which Mm -hmm. you know is fine with me Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's a great tool. There's actually a couple other really nice climbs in that area. Um, Madera Canyon is a shootout favorite. It's got this gruesome 2% uphill for about 10, 15 miles before Ooh. the climb itself. Oh, man. So you get to the base and you're like already gassed. Mm. And uh, yeah, there's just some really cool riding out there. Because it takes uh, what? The, the KOM up Mount Lemon is what? It's over two hours, it's, isn't it? It's an hour and 15 minutes. What? 
Yeah. Lionel Sanders, it's like uh, 18 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, my gosh, man. Uh, uh, it's a tremendous effort. Yeah. The longest climb I've done, I did Mount Evans once. And nice. uh, Ben Day and I did it together. Uh, took us a long time. It's steep. You know, it's it's got some steady parts, but it's a fairly steep climb. Um, it's not as steep as Pike's Peak. I've done parts mm-hmm. of Pike's Peak. But, yeah, it's a long, long climb. It's well worth it. Uh, the descent down Mount Evans is awesome. I understand the descent down Mount Lemon is like, nah, it's a lot of pedaling and it's not technical. And, and so I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much as I usually do, but I've heard a lot about it. One of these days I'll go. My winter favorite destination uh, is Austin. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I'm due an Austin trip and originally planned to get down there this winter, but it didn't work out with all that's going on. But I love going down there. Uh, They do get some, they tend to get some, you know, crappy weather a little bit. Uh, Nothing like what we get here in the mountains, but it's a good destination because they have a good steady mix of rolling hills, uh, some flatter roads. They got some really good short, steep hills in West Austin uh, that will, boy, (laughs) you better have the right gearing for. But I love going down there. love the atmosphere. love the tacos. uh, And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I've kept going back over the years. Plus, I've made some great friendships down there. So Austin's another good destination. But one of these days, I'm going to get to Tucson. So, but uh, not this year. And been stuck in the mountains, which is not a bad place to be uh, right here in the winter still have a lot of snow on the ground here at my house at beach and uh you know we just got to play dodgeball with the weather getting out there and getting training done but you know takes what it takes so uh all right so you're in roanoke i'm at beach where we got this episode we want to talk about we have a couple topics uh one one main topic and there's just you know there's forks in the road that we can take this conversation within it so uh what are we going to talk about today so we're going to talk about what our plan is for the next few months since what we're assuming now is that meaningful racing isn't going to happen until middle of April or let's just say May 1st. So we've been hemming and hawing in a way of what best to do during this time. So how do we, how do we maximize these two or three months that we've got that's kind of bonus time where there's things on the horizon motivation is high again and in a way we're almost too ready to go so how do we how do we from a coaching perspective and as athletes ourselves um you know pull back on the reins while still you know maximizing our our ability to train and and benefit from you know january february march where we're not going to be doing that high intensity exercise getting ready for racing so um and we're in the middle of holiday season right now, which is always a tough time, even if things are going your way, training-wise, and and we're pre you know we're presupposing that you've already been getting after it during this this uh, uh, this base building phase, had a prep phase, base building, and we're making that transition from base to build, and you know none of us right now this year know exactly how long that needs to be. And as time goes on, we'll start to see what the calendar looks like. But one of the things we talked about off air was more times than not, we don't know what the schedule is going to be anyway, even in a non-pandemic year until sometime in January and the dates get firmed up and you're like, oh, okay. So that race is happening when it normally does. 
or maybe it got pushed out a few weeks. So this really isn't all that, uh, un, you know, not normal. I mean, this where we're at right now is a typical year of preparation, of uncertainty of, well, when are these races going to happen? So, yeah, like you said, looking ahead, thinking about, well, for now, it makes sense, I think, to just have ourselves prepare, even in a great year, uh, peak events, A events, not going to take place until sometime after May for most athletes. Right. So that's what we want to do is like, all right, we've already put down a, a fairly good foundation and we can work with that. And you should be, all of us should be beyond that riding, you know, uh, uh, mindset. We're in training mindset. And there's a big difference between riding your bike and training your bike. So right now we should be focused on training. And, uh, and so, yes, that's what we want to talk about. And yeah, maybe touch on that notion of, you know, a lot of people out there, they're, they're on the fence about really training their bike. They shy away from that. They love riding their bike. They love going to hard group rides. They love pushing themselves, but there is a difference between riding and training, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I always think back to, uh, one of the things we talk about is an endurance ride being one long interval and you want to hit that power target or that heart rate target for the duration of the entire interval. So that to me is the notion of training. If you're going on a group ride, you're cruising with your friends, you're sprinting up the hills and coasting down the, on the downhills and things like that. That feels like a ride to me, whether it's a group ride or a ride with friends or a solo ride, all of that where there's less attention to the detail of what you're actually doing is a ride where this time of year, we're trying to send the same signal over as many hours that we need to send it so that you can adapt and become better at whatever you're doing. So that kind of, that feels like the switch is flipped from riding to training. And whenever my athletes uh, grumble about their friends dropping them on climbs, or they know they shouldn't be doing this or that, or, you know, they had to, they had to ride with the B group today to stay in endurance. Those things feel like training comments to me, where where we're getting locked in. What about you, man? It it makes me recall uh, my friend Christian Foster. I had him on the podcast a, uh, a while back, and Christian uh, was a, a top regional elite rider. Got to race professionally for a little bit, and. When I was first getting into racing, I would go to uh, Nashville's version of the shootout, if you will, but it wasn't a, a hardcore race. It was a, just a Saturday morning group ride, and Christian and a couple other people would be the leaders. Christian was by far, hands down, best cyclist in our area. Everybody knew that. We would go do these rides, and Middle Tennessee is very hilly. They'd have climbs that are, you know, two, to minute, two minutes to five minutes long. Christian was always dead last on those climbs. It, during the wintertime, during this time of year, dead last and he would just rail on everyone what are you guys doing why are you doing this and you know people just they just love to push it they can't help themselves and that always stood out to me because he was very disciplined and he rode at the pace he was supposed to be at according to that time of year and and then you know yeah when when things heated up when may hit june july he was crushing everybody uh, and that stood out. That sent a message to me that, okay, what is the right way to do this? So, yeah, being disciplined, having discipline, uh, I mean, it's tough, uh, but it, 
it feeds into your goals. You know, it's the thing, doing the right thing in the right moment is what's going to feed into your goals and just being disciplined. I, I just think about that all the time. And I see it as a problem for a lot of people, not just the ones we work with directly with the kids at school, uh, because they're very competitive and we cannot allow for our competitive juices to get the best of us when we're training. And when you're racing, yeah. But right. that's only if it fits into the tactics of the day. You know, you've got to really keep your competitive juices in in check and say, is, is this the right thing to do right now? And so that's what we want to focus on. What is the right thing to do right now after you've been laying a really good base? And I think also what we're going to talk about, even if someone is, say, a few weeks behind, maybe they just got started late, uh, maybe they've had an illness or they just had family obligations, people shouldn't panic right now, you know. Uh, I think they have time to get themselves prepared, but they have to start today. They can't kick the can down the road. They have to get started today, and they have plenty of time to do it. It just means that those that have been getting after it the last six weeks, eight weeks, they're just a little farther ahead. But uh, but here we are, and now what are we going to focus on the next two to three months? It's going to really feed into our development because we want to talk about athlete development here in this short right. term as well as long term. You know, where are you on the spectrum of, of athletic development, no matter what age you are, what level you are? We're going to touch on that a little bit, too. So, yeah, what, w- what should we be focused on at this moment in time, Zach? Well, I think let's, let's take the example of someone who's, who's had at least maybe two weeks, right, of, of training. And they're getting back to it, and they're they're looking at this long road ahead before their their first race. Um, and even if they've been training for a little while, um, I think with most of the people that we work with, that aerobic foundation is always it's it's both the low hanging fruit because it's obvious they need to work on it, and the hardest thing to progress at. So, taking this time to really dial in and learn how to do a steady state endurance ride and how to nail your tempo intervals and do those things below your threshold in like the most precise scientific perfect way possible and extend the duration that you can do those things is like what i'm focusing on as an athlete and what i'm having a lot of my people do um because it's what they need right it's not what everybody wants to be doing when it's cold and wet and it's very like classic kind of base building exercise, but the bigger you can build that foundation and the more efficient you can be at those sub-maximal efforts, the more we can stack on and the more success you're gonna have in those long arduous races that are coming. Um, so what, I mean, is that what you're having people do too? Yeah, I think stability. We, right. want, we want to build stability within their uh, aerobic capacity, their endurance, their muscular endurance, and uh, and set them up for success later on. Uh, and so I think about stability. Uh, and because with stability, that's going to feed into consistency. You know, you, you can get it, – it doesn't take a genius to figure out how to get fast. You're probably going to be inconsistent if there's no stability there. And, and building that aerobic engine is going to provide that stability that everybody needs. Uh, that's going to, you know, help further your growth and uh, provide the consistency that you look for. And if you have consistency, you're going to be less frustrated 
and um, and like you said, be able to build up on top of that. So, yeah, I, I agree. And people are at different places with that, as far as what you said about preparation. How many? How much time have they already invested in uh, what they're doing? And I think something else that sticks out for me is to not to to just compare yourself with yourself. Uh, and where you are in your own personal development. You know, if I compared myself to you, like how many hours make the most sense for me and where I am in my athletic career, so to speak, versus where you are, and I look at the 25 hours or 30 hours a week you're doing, I'm going to I'm gonna feel pretty inferior and think, oh, I should be doing that. Or if someone even looks at how much I do and they think, God, how is he, how is he accomplishing that? Maybe that's how much I should be doing. That's not the right way to look at it. You know, you right. should, where are you in your own development? How much stress have you already adapted to and are capable of? We want to stretch you beyond what you have done already. And then also think about what is the type of racing that you're going to be doing uh, um, ahead? Is it going to be long road races at the Cat 3 level? Is it going to be criteriums at the Elite Masters level? Is, are you going to be doing a bunch of P12 races? Um, what is it? Because your training needs to mirror what type of racing you're going to be doing. Uh, and so all these things have to be considered. And that's where having uh, a coach with experience can look at these things to provide you that objectivity because it's difficult for us to do it on our own by ourselves. So not that this is a pitch for more coaching clients, but it is sort of a pitch that it is important to have a coach to see that big picture view as you're trying to develop, even though we're only talking about what are we going to do for the next two or three months? It's like, well, it depends. So, right. and that's where the context really matters. And yeah, whether you have a coach or not, it's great to look back at last year or two years ago and see what you were deficient in at those key moments in races. What was the thing that you felt held you back that maybe now is the time to work on, right? So, um, what what these athletes need from a coaching perspective and from a physical development perspective is much different than maybe what it seems like on the surface. So what we see a lot when we go back and we look at is people say, oh, I didn't have enough top end or I didn't have the snap to to win out of the breakaway at the end of a race. But really what's happening and you'll see it in their training rides it, and their training up to that point is that. American riding and racing is very high octane, right? There's a lot of surges. There's a lot of top end. So by the time you get to the end of a race, you've done a tremendous amount of explosive work and it relies heavily on your ability to aerobically recover and create that energy again so that you can use it for the next surge. So that's one of the benefits of having a second set of eyes on your training is that American racing is not long and arduous classic style racing, but the underlying physiology in a lot of senses is the same, where you need to have a massive foundation of just aerobic strength. And then when we're training for racing and we're trying to simulate those race winning moves and those like high intensity surges things like that you're going to be able to do more of them in training and have a larger response to that workload so 
yeah, coaching a lot of the times is looking at what an athlete needs at the moment and really break picking it apart and seeing that it's not it's not finding a solution to the problem in you know in high intensity work to fix their high intensity deficit at the end of a race but understanding what it actually takes to create more high intensity energy and that's mm-hmm. sparing high intensity energy well the thing two things jump out as you're saying that is number one our goal through say a a base or a build phase is to build resistance to fatigue. That's right. essentially it, you know, is to, uh, you've heard me say what I, I want to coin this phrase, the new cool, the new cool in cycling. It isn't FTP. It isn't all these other metrics. It is the new cool is low heart rate, high Watts. That's it. Yep. <laughs> That's it. That's your goal. Uh, that should be your, your goal at all times, low heart rate, high Watts. Uh, to become more economical, to be more efficient. As you said, use your energy wisely. So when you need it, it's there. And you didn't compromise it uh, in advance when things really hit the fan. And uh, that's if you stick with uh, a properly programmed, uh, the prescription is right. Uh, If you stick with it and you're disciplined, it's amazing to me how you'll look and like, well, at 130 beats per minute or whatever someone's uh, low in or upper endurance heart rate is, you know, two months ago, boy, my wattage was, was only that, but now it's this and, and my effort level is the same, but my watts went up. How did that happen? And, and that goes to the heart of what we're talking about. So the new cool is low heart rate, high watts, which then will stack on that harder work later on <clears throat> and you will have more energy to give more effort to give, more strength to give when the race splits happen. Right. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things you see in like world tour cyclists are a great example of this as they're developing from elite level juniors to U23 to world tour race winning professionals is that their VO2 max does not change significantly, but their ability to repeat these efforts and their efficiency on the bike increases dramatically over the course of that five or seven year period. So really, if you break that down into what our athletes need is they need to be more efficient. And so using, let's say we have two or three extra months right now to make them stronger in the sense of they've got a better pedal stroke. They can handle a higher percentage of their FTP at an endurance pace. They're better at fueling on the bike. They're aerobic decoupling, right? So their their low heart rate, high watts lasts longer into an endurance ride before it becomes high heart rate, high watts. Um, Those things are really important. And in a lot of situations, a lot of scenarios, we don't have time to take an extra block to just slowly progress in both duration and intensity of these sub-maximal efforts. Um, well, so now we're here and let's drill down just a little bit with mm-hmm. what, as an athlete, what kind of workouts should they consider doing? What should they do? You know, what type of interval work, gearing work, what are some things during this, this, uh, these next couple of months, we will just, we'll just say this build portion of your plan. What 
should an athlete be focused on? Right. So um, the things that stand out to me are steady state endurance is one of them. So by the end of your quote unquote base and the start of your build, you want to have the ability to ride at the highest endurance wattage at endurance heart rate that you can. Um, and so some things to look for when you're doing these rides is your intensity factor, which is your percentage of your FTP. That is your normalized power for the whole ride, your variability index, um, which is how much of your ride is spent at a steady wattage. Um, so variability index for a perfect ride on the trainer in erg mode is going to be 1.00. Which means you are pedaling, pedaling the whole time, essentially. You're pedaling the whole time at the same wattage, right? Um, and so for a professional criterium where you're a very efficient rider, uh, let's say you're you know, a, a sprinter waiting for the end of a race, your variability index is going to be 1.0. 3 to 1.4, very surgy and snappy and a lot of coasting. Um, So there's time and place for that. If you want to be efficient right now in endurance, you want to get as close to 1.0 as possible. And what that means for a lot of athletes living in the mountains or uh, who have rolling hills that they train on is you got to pedal on downhills. And uh, the first time you do it, I mean, do you remember the first time you had to to pedal on all the downhills? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, first – uh, I've said this before. I thought I could corner. I thought I was pretty good at cornering. Uh, I, I wasn't, and, you know, when you, you, you just aren't accustomed to technical descending. And, uh, I learned that I don't like to coast. I didn't know yeah. that. I don't like coasting. I think we all can relate in a way where if you go out on a group ride, you know, let's say there's 10, 15, 20 people and whoever is sitting on the front, they're getting a workout. But the right. people in the middle or to the back, if you don't have a steady rotation of that group ride, that variability index, as you said, is going to be pretty high, and your which is going to affect your intensity factor. Which means the guy on the front or the lady on the front did the bulk of the work. They're going to be producing a higher percentage of their so-called FTP. Um, but if you've been sitting in the back all day, you got an easier ride. Yeah, your workout really wasn't as quality as those that were doing the work. So. I learned that yeah, I did not like not pedaling my bike down uh, descents because they can be anywhere from five minutes to 10, 12 minutes long. So, yeah, that's when I started pedaling and uh, getting more of an effort through that. I think it's helped me uh, to be a better descender, but also it's improved the quality of my workouts. Right. So really the, the aim is that you're pedaling as much as possible and you're stopping as little as possible, and you're just sending the same signal. You're sending the same wattage through your legs to the pedals for as long as you can, for whatever duration that workout is. So you're saying, um, that, so, pro- you're saying that stopping at the coffee shop on, on endurance days, that's, that's not a good idea? I like to, uh, to time my stops. I like to be as efficient as possible. If you're stopping for, for more than five or six minutes, boo. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the goal. Um, and it all goes back to, yeah, uh, lessen the amount of people in your group, right? Become more efficient at pedaling the whole time so you're not having to sit behind somebody in the draft. And it means that you can get in and out of the gas station, out of the coffee shop, whatever, quicker. Um, so, yeah, if you're – there's there's always uh, – on Strava, there's 
uh, ride time and then there's elapsed time. And it is my personal goal. If I'm riding a hundred hours in a year in base season, I want to have 101 elapsed hours. I want to be as efficient as possible. Um, and that means hustling when you're, when you're on your stop. It means when you go into the gas station, you get whatever you need to get, you fill your bottles up and then whatever junk food that you got in that gas station, you're eating it on the bike. Yeah. It doesn't, you don't get a break. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. Cafe time on, on the important rides is, is an important right. thing for people to consider. Hey man, you're, you're easy day. You're really easy, uh, active recovery kind of day. That's the best day or when it's just really a chill day. Yeah. Do those, uh, coffee bakery rides then, but not when you're doing some real work, you need to keep the engine hot. You need to keep it going. And so, yes, all those things. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the metrics of intensity factor and variability index. Those are the two numbers I look at the first, you know, when I go into training peaks, even if I'm going into an athlete's workout quality for the day, those are the two things I look at, uh, right out of the gate. And, uh, you know, this is also, banking on the fact that we have our settings where they're supposed to be as it comes to say FTP or whatever the, the threshold or whatever metric we're using, um, to, to denote, you know, what someone's upper capabilities are, because that's going to certainly play a role. So feeding good information into the system to begin with is key and, uh, and then working from that. But so we're still continuing to do endurance rides, muscular endurance and challenging rides. Uh, what else are some things that during these rides, okay, you know, like what for you example, what are, what are some of the things that you're going to be doing? And then what are some of the athletes that, that we're coaching? What are they going to be doing? Yeah. So some of the, the very bread and butter, um, efforts are at tempo. So, um, some people call it fat max, um, basically tempo wattage is above your endurance and below your threshold. Um, and these efforts are just hard enough to help stimulate that, um, aerobic endurance in a different way. So you're not, um, it's not as, as easy steady state effort. You're actually having to burn some high energy fuel to get these things done. Um, and that challenges your ability to fuel on the bike and produce that energy over a long period of time. So really with the tempo stuff, we want to extend the duration of these and cut down on the rest period between the efforts as we progress through the block. So, um, what are some examples you know, that, how would you design? I know, I mean, I know the answer to these questions, but I want yeah. you to sort of suggest, you know, what are some suggestions for people out there? You know, what are some, what are those interval uh, what do they look like? What's the duration? What would be a rest period and how to progressively build that amount of stress, you know, because how you would start that early tempo phase and how it looks at the end, say of two months, say, you know, you're going to increase that workload. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in very basic terms, you pick a, a starting number that you think you can handle. You cut it up into maybe two or three, so let's say 30 minutes is your, your starting number. 30 minutes of tempo should be something that is challenging if you're first starting, but two months down the road is, is a warm up. Um, so you would start with three by 10 minutes. And then the next week you would add 10 total minutes to your tempo. So you have 40, but you would cut it up into 
two by 20 minutes and then 50. And so normally within, within a given week, you can fit two quality tempo sessions. So I try to keep the total amount of minutes the same every week and cut them up with less rest. So 40 minutes is a good example of two by 20 with a five minute rest in between is the same workload as one by 40 minutes, but they are totally different efforts from a physical sense. So giving an athlete confident that they can do confidence that they can do 40 minutes of work with the two by 20 with five minutes rest. And that's enough time to get a swig of water and a snack without having to pedal and breathe hard. And then they go back later in the week and do the exact same amount of work with no break where now they're having to fuel during that effort and be very cognizant of their amount of water, all the things, um, staying, uh, stable and relaxed on the bike. Uh, you know, after 40 minutes, it wears on you. Your low back might get tired. You might get real sweaty in the cold and, you know, have to rethink your clothing. So doing that, um, I think most athletes that, um, are at the level that we're kind of working with, um, juniors, elite amateurs, that kind of thing. Um, 90 minutes of tempo is a good target, um, where you should comfortably be able to complete it after two months of working up towards it. Um, and remember, we don't progress our, our long tempo as much during like a recovery week. So if you start at 30 to get to 90, it's not going to take you six weeks. It might take you eight. Um, but 90 minutes of tempo is good. Um, and then as you progress, right, your races are going to get longer. Um, you've had several years of training under your belt where this is your off season. Um, working up to 180, 240 minutes of tempo um, during those final uh base months uh into the first couple build months is not unrealistic um but it is very challenging it's an eating competition yeah it is tough. um it's very tough yeah have you done some of those long tempo not, efforts not that that much um yeah. but i agree with you I, it's a key distinction that people understand is that like you said start with a total number of work uh, minutes that you want to do for that workout day. Maybe the ride is going to be two to three hours, but you say, okay, I want to accomplish 30 minutes total worth of work. It doesn't have to be in one interval. Break it up three by 10. And then that's this week. Next week, maybe it is, as you said, it's a uh, uh, 40 minutes total worth of work. It could be, you, you could still, you could do a four by 10 or it could be two by 20. And the goal is, you know, by the end of that, say, three-week build is that you can handle 60 minutes worth of work and then that next block, you know, build up towards 90 where you take that same progression. Week to week, you're just adding a little bit more stress each time. Uh, my sweet spot for myself as far as just being an athlete is, isn't necessarily at the tempo range, although I do my fair share of that type of riding. Um but I think it's valuable for athletes to do and to look at it from the standpoint, like you just suggested is total amount of work. There's ride duration and then there's actual work within that ride duration. Those are not the same thing uh, because you're going to be riding either doing recovery or at endurance in between. And, uh, um, and then again, yeah, just helping facilitate resistance to fatigue. Right. And it is that metabolic pressure right? You're forcing, you're forcing your body to go into, into a maximal state of producing energy. Um, and that's very powerful. Um, it's going to lead to those endurance rides feeling easier because you're becoming more efficient as an athlete. 
by keeping that pressure on doing these longer efforts. Um, and over time, I mean, you can, you can do these kind of sort of indefinitely, right? And they, they simulate maybe a breakaway or something like that. Um, but, but there is power in both knowing that you can do them and doing them consistently during this time of year. Um, because it makes you better at fueling and drinking and it shows you flaws in your bike fit and your pedaling mechanics. Um, so all of those things that are great to address right now where you have time. If, you, if you're doing a 30 minute tempo set and your knee is killing you or your low back is killing you or something like that, then you need to go and assess these issues and taking a week or two weeks to adapt to a new position or work on flexibility and strength and maybe take a, a, a step back on the time that you're spending on the bike is totally possible right now without it impacting your season. So how often would an athlete do these workouts in a week? Mm -hmm. um, I would say one to two times a week. And it depends, um, again, on what their training history is, what other efforts they might have during the week. Um, because, you know, if we just did tempo and endurance, yeah, you get faster, but there's a point at which you start adding in other things. Um, and so that's kind of the, the transition from maybe your, you'd call it your base one, base two, those first four to six weeks of base into kind of base three and four, and maybe even five, since we have so much time where you're introducing in some strength endurance work. Mm -hmm. Well, and you were talking about force there, you know, getting mm -hmm. mixing in some force. force work, which which that was going to be the next thing we could sort of incorporate into this period. Uh, I've always found it's athletes uh, have responded pretty well to most people can handle two days a week. Uh, and of course, it all depends on where they are in their own personal development. But the key will be giving enough separation between those those days where they've recovered sufficiently to be able to tackle that second day. Uh, and I think another key is, you know, on one of those second days, usually maybe it's the weekend. Let's say they do that work on either Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then come back and do it on one of the days during the weekend. As a bike racer, we talked about in the last episode of doing back-to-back -back days. You know, you're racing right. on the weekend. You have to be able to come back and reproduce that effort or at least be able to get up and out the door and be able to go do some quality work maybe not at the same level but you you need to be able to get out there and get after it and uh you know stress the body uh, consecutive days uh it doesn't have to be to the same level but you're going to be doing that during the race season and uh and so i've, I've found two days a week is good it's plenty because like you said there's other things that you also want to simultaneously work on to some extent. And so what are some of those things? Yeah. Like you mentioned force. That's my, favorite. Uh, that's so, my, that's my personal favorite. So, yeah, <laughs> I think everybody, uh, yeah, every, everybody who has, has gone through some, some force or some big gear or strength endurance blocks and come out and survived it in a way, uh, really enjoys it and look forward to it. So force workouts, um, yeah, or strength endurance, big gear workouts are done at a lower RPM um, and typically at a little bit higher wattage um, than a tempo workout. So these are, these are workouts 
um, that we prescribe anywhere from 50 to 70 RPM. Um, and some of that depends on the athlete, right? Um, but, and these are done for anywhere between one and maybe 15 minutes um, per interval with a little bit of break afterwards. And the real magic and the reason that we do these is you are creating so much tension in your legs that your muscles that routinely pedal the bike are asking for help from muscles adjacent to them. So your, your quads and your glutes and things like that, there's prime movers within those muscles. And then there's all these accessory fibers that maybe aren't the best at cycling. Well, when you have to jam on the pedals at 50 RPM for a long time, those muscles need to help out. And we are making them better cycling muscles by doing these force workouts. Um, and that will lead to greater efficiency. The same reason we do the tempo, the same reason we do the, the long endurance rise is we want to make whatever muscle we got the most efficient at cycling that we possibly can. So what are then some of your favorite force workouts? I have mine that I love to prescribe and love to do, and I get pretty wacky with the ones I like to do mm-hmm. on top of the of the real specific ones. But what are some, uh, uh, what's some typical force workouts that you like to prescribe? Yeah, so I, I do a typical uh, progression in the same way of accumulating more minutes of force throughout the weeks. So I prefer doing longer duration force workouts at a little bit lower intensity. Um, so typically these start out at either tempo or sweet spot. So anywhere from 80 to 92% of your FTP. Which and is, which is really hard to do when you're doing force work which is tough. You, you really want to jam on the pedals, but there is a level of stability and um, form work that comes by doing it a little bit easier than you want to. Um, and maybe touch, and so, on, touch on how important it is to vary the terrain that you do these things on, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of times, especially for us here in the mountains, uh, we all are can be guilty of this we'll go do these intervals whatever kind of interval it is and we'll nat we'll just say well it's just so easier to go over on this climb or that climb and mm-hmm. and do it but the real world is you better be able to do it on some flat rolling roads and and so going and finding a flatter stretch of road to do these things that opens up a whole new challenge versus going up a climb definitely um especially for the tempo intervals they will they will uh show you uh, how how good your aerodynamic position is, how comfortable you are pushing a big gear on the flats, things like that. Um, and it's a real wake-up call for, for people who do all of their efforts on the climbs that the wattage is the same, but the feel is mm. totally different. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be able to sustain it. Um, you know, the, the wattage is the same, but you're going to be a lot more muscularly fatigued or it's going to stress the limits of your position if you're doing it on unfamiliar terrain. So I think, yeah, doing, doing the tempo on a flat roads is always a wake up call, but sometimes the, the strength endurance, the, the big gear work, you do need a little bit of a rise, um, just because we're limited by what our biggest gear is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do all my strength endurance stuff on the climbs unless it's, uh, you know, a little false flat uphill, but I do a lot of mine on on that as well, uh, but yeah. but at the same time, I love doing it uh, for the force the force work especially on on climbs, just because it it's easier to execute, 
in the tempo stuff, yeah, try to be do that on flatter flatter roads. But you know, for me, what I enjoy prescribing and and seeing people do, and again, this goes back to where where are they on the spectrum of their development? What 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 is normal for them? What are they capable of? Um, and oftentimes, those force intervals. Also, I will start those at four minutes. And, mm-hmm. and start them at, say, like 24 minutes worth of work or maybe it's getting close to in 30, 32 to 36 to try to build them up to where we can sort of get that total amount of work, you know, 48 minutes to 60 minutes, depending upon where they are in their development. Um, I don't know if more than 60 is, you know, I'm sure you can do it. Does it give you much benefit? I don't know because it really is taxing physically. But yeah, I'll do something, for example, say a six by four, you know, a four minute interval with a four minute rest. You can cut down on the rest, but I think four minutes, most people mentally, physically, uh, six intervals at four minutes with four minutes rest. And as you said, that RPM is going to vary according to the person. But that 50 to 70 range, I think going above 70 is, is too much. But being below 70 is a is a is a good marker. But dipping below 50, not not good. And you know, unless you're doing it for two pedal strokes, because you're going through a steep a steep switchback, right. so to speak. So I think that's a good start. And then from there, uh, I'll either add more intervals. But usually, I'll stretch that four minute to six to eight, and then maybe to ten, and then back off the number of interval sets that they would have. Uh, and just see what they can handle, you know, where, where usually our second or third interval is our best one where we look and we're like, all right, I'm really opened up. That went well. And then compare that last interval set to the second or third one. When, what was the output? What was the, uh, the RPM? What was it like? Was it quality? What, how much of a percentage dip in their output took place? Uh, but try to stretch them over time during these two months, three months that we're talking about, again, improve that quality of work uh, and, um, and and then, you know, see how they respond. And this is where you get the endurance effect, you get this force effect, the tempo. Uh, you and I were talking about this earlier today. This is when we learn about one's durability and how right. important uh, durability is in all of ath- athletics, um, no matter what sport you play, and the higher you go, and the more work you put into something, and the more structured and more difficult that work is, the word durability becomes uh, very important. Yeah, definitely. Um, and to that point, a more durable athlete or someone who has a long training history with strength endurance work will work up to something like a four by 10 at sweet spot. And then they'll progress um, to a four by 10 at threshold. And then you will start um, in order to add more tension during the final weeks, you'll start ending up ending the efforts with a 30 second spin up seated from the same gear that you've done the duration of the interval in. So an example of that would be nine and a half minutes at 50 RPM and then a 30 second seated effort trying to reach maximal RPM in the same gear. And we're doing um, that because what is it that we're wanting to simulate there at the very end? What, and well, I mean, I kind of have my thoughts in my head. I'm trying, mm-hmm. I put this into perspective of well, what happens in a race. So why would we have an athlete have that burst towards the end of their interval? 
Well, sure. You want to you want to prove that you can do it in a race winning situation. But the real thing for at least the strength endurance is you want to create as much tension in your muscle as possible. So, you know, typically in a in a 10 minute interval at threshold, something like that, you're really getting five minutes where your body's like, oh, man, we got to adapt to this. So you're getting those first five minutes in a way are kind of freebies where you're using energy you already have stored up and you're just trying to get to the point where you're uh, focusing on the adaptation from the interval. So adding it at the end, that last 30 seconds, you're maximizing the the signaling to your body of, oh man, we got to recruit more fibers. We got to create as many cycling related fibers as possible and make them as efficient as possible because we're under a lot of strain right now. This is tough. So using that last 30 seconds to really send the signal as strongly as possible. I mean, it's terrible. Um, it is very, very difficult to do these properly. Um, is the most bang for the buck place to put that 30 seconds. You wouldn't put it at the beginning and you certainly wouldn't try and do it for longer because you're going to be out of, out of the gear range if you're trying to do a minute long spin up or you're just not gonna be able to do it. Um, so putting it at the end, you were sending the signal very strongly. Um, and it's really only a workout that you would send to someone who is durable, who has proven week in and week out that, yeah, regardless of the intensity or how many times they have to do this or what part of the week it's in, that these these efforts are something they can handle. Um, and for those athletes, they need that extra little bit of stimulus because maybe they've done these in years past and they need something new to send that signal more strongly to their body. And, and to put this in a racing perspective, um, the good thing is one in the training, it gets easier. You know, it feels like it gets easier. The, the work gets, it's as equally as hard as it was the first time you did it. But once you do this over time repeatedly, you, your body just knows this is what we do and it responds. And that sensation gets easier and easier each sub subsequent time. But for those uh, cyclists out there who are climbing the ranks a lot of times, you know, in Cat 5 races or Cat 4 races, you go up these challenging climbs and, boy, people are just killing it up the climb. They get to the top and all of a sudden they're coasting, you know, and yep. they're just sort of taking it. They, they let off the gas. And, uh, uh, but you, you, you start to notice when you get to the Pro 1-2 level, they don't let off the gas. It, that is the moment to, to really – lay down the law and just uh, drop the hammer. Yeah, they're going hard up the climb, but where the separations oftentimes occur is at the very top on the other side. And if you can do this in your interval work where, you know, you make that final burst, it's going to make those moments in the races a lot more doable. And you better just go ahead and expect it because that's what's going to happen. That's a good word. Expect. Yep. <laughs> Once you've, yeah, once you've made the mistake once of, of watching somebody surge away from you on, uh, the crest of a, of, of a long hill, something like that, uh, never again, right. You have to just expect it. Um, and that kind of leads into the last type of work that I like to have people do during this base beginning build series is neuromuscular work. Um, you don't need a lot of it, but you do need some, um, and some is different for different types of riders. So if you're very steady state and you're fancying yourself as a, as a climber or, you know, a more, one of those more breakaway style riders, then maybe 
once a week, once every two weeks, you do need to do some, some 20, 20 second efforts, some spin ups, some seated sprints, something like that, because we never want that neuromuscular high intensity power to go away because it contributes in the same way that all the other systems do to everything that we do. So if you're, if you're training two systems very well and you ignore one, well, there's a limit to the amount of progress that you're going to be able to make. Um, well, and you so know, know, you're big on, yeah, that, that, well. yeah, that's, that's something where you and I, we do it just a little bit differently in our prescription, but it's something that, you know, my, uh, my original coach, that was something he did in the training and he did it all throughout the season. And of course, I mean, I was a cat three and just up and coming. I think the lesser developed, less experienced riders, I think it's even more important for them to do this, uh, so that they're ready for that higher level racing down the road. The higher level you are, you may not need as much because of uh, of all the adaptations that you've had throughout the years and that depth that you have. But, yeah, I'm big on seated bursts, eight-second seated bursts through an endurance ride or five-second seated bursts. Uh, you know, uh, if it's eight minute, if it's eight second seated burst, I'll do those like maybe every 10 minutes, every 15 minutes. If it's a five second burst, those are way more taxing, believe it or not. But I'll, but because I'll do them at shorter, shorter interval levels uh, and maybe not the whole ride. But I found that the less experienced younger riders really gain from it because it's another a way for them to just, just prep them for this is what's going to happen in a race. You're going to have countless seated bursts uh to get on a wheel to get to close a gap to uh to jump across whatever it might be and it sort of feeds into you know what we're talking about it's one more way uh if you do a you know if you do a tempo ride on saturday you did that quality work and you got to come back and do a really good solid endurance ride the next day some type of uh if you're not doing force uh then yeah jump on some some type of burst output that's going to wake up the system and just uh, to the points that you just said. I think they're, those are hugely valuable. Right. But they, a lot of times, if you notice, I love doing this, prescribe that workout, and I go into the graph. I won't even look at the IF or whatever on that day. I'll go into the graph. I'm like, hmm, did they do the burst today? And athletes overlook it. They mm-hmm. neglect it. They won't do it. They don't understand uh, how valuable they can be to their success. I know they can be, but, uh, and so I love to call athletes out on it. Like, why did you skip those bursts? You know, they're, you know, I didn't put those there for, 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 uh, for kicks and giggles, you know, it's like, it's there to help you get better. And, uh, so yeah, that's what I like to do. I know you do it a little bit differently, but it's the same, it's the same purpose. It's the same it's the reason. Same purpose. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so so we've talked about what tempo. What else? What are some key? That, you tempo, know? strength, endurance, and then our neuromuscular stuff. Um, and really, I mean, you don't want to extend base indefinitely, but the time component on when those things stop being beneficial to you is like sixteen weeks after you start doing them. Um, so really, if you if you have the extra time, like we do this year with a lot of our athletes. Um, to do this kind of aerobic intensive workout um, and keep this build going um, to where they are able to handle uh, some longer strength endurance workouts. Um, they're able to handle the, the 30 second spin up 
um, hopefully on some of these. They're able to handle 90 minutes of tempo. Um, for a lot of athletes, that's what they need. And in a traditional year, you might only get eight to 12 weeks to do something like this. So if they're, you know, if you push them too hard and you have to back off or, you know, you're really burying them with this kind of intensity that they're not used to, um, then you create a problem for them where they're not going to be set up as well for the next block where now we have time to very gradually do these kind of things. And maybe it's only five minutes of tempo that you're increasing some of these athletes uh, per week or one or two extra minutes of strength endurance, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's not to their detriment because maybe that's the maximum that they can handle with all the other things that they're doing. That's a good point. Then um, that, that's something we can sort of touch on as sort of the last aspect of what we're talking about. And that's just the overall athlete development arc, you know, what that yep. looks like and the variances within that, you know, because we, uh, depending upon when you come to this sport, uh, you know, you could go from junior to then a collegiate U23 rider, then to elite, perhaps then to pro. If you stick with it, you're going to get to the master's level. A lot of cyclists come to the sport at the master's level, but then you're a category racer to start out. Your development is uh, maybe nowhere near that of a U23, even though they're younger and you're older. So these durations and these workloads are you know, going to be contingent upon where you are on that arc. And as a coach, we're thinking about your long-term development. Athletes, you, uh, you need to be thinking about your long-term development, where you want to be in 2022, 2023. Let's say no matter what level you're at, you know, what do you want to achieve? What level do you want to get to? What's the timeline look like to get there in your development? So rather than look at, well, I'm, I want to upgrade from Cat 4 to Cat 3, you know, at this point in the season, and then go from Cat 3 to Cat 2, I, I don't like looking at development that way. I prefer to look at where are you now in your overall development, where do you want to go, and where do you need to be, and then let's fit these other things in. Because if we handle the development right and the stress right, the workload right, all those results are going to come. They're just going to happen. Uh, but that arc is very important because as coaches, we have to think about that long term, even though we're trying to prepare you for what's happening in May, in June and July. Yeah, totally. Um, I think one of the averse aspects of what we've been dealing with this last year with races getting canceled is it's almost the same thing that we saw with the Masters Zwift community in like 2015, is now we're going to have all these dudes who have an entire another year of training under their belt and these crazy high FTPs and they're very excited to race and they have no racing experience. Um, so that is, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting first month whenever we get rocking and rolling because we're, yeah, we're not able to develop a well-rounded athlete when there's no exposure to certain things um, such as pack dynamics, bike handling skills, race tactics. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very difficult to, to look long-term and say, oh, well, you have the fitness to be XYZ category, but you just don't have the race experience. Well, no, you also don't have the necessary skills of 
bike handling of reading a race uh, course, reading a race tactically, um, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a very um, interesting year on that front where you might end up suggesting an athlete race more than you actually want them to, to catch up in a way on race experience. And then you kind of condense their season so that you can do work towards 2022, 2023, but they're not going to be held back by, you know, in, intangibles in a way, things that you can't measure with a metric. Yeah, the challenge for a lot of athletes is going to be uh, when to say no uh, as it comes to racing because everyone's going to be excited and they're going to want yeah. to go race and uh, you want to be careful to not overdo it. Uh, it's naturally uh, – accepted i mean we just know that athletes are going to be eager and they're going to jump at every chance uh to do it to uh to to not have to train it's like it's more fun to race than it is to train you know in most situations so uh knowing when to say no i foresee let's say a year year and a half from now i hope our goal should be to not be having conversations about uh overreaching you know, that's one thing, you know, it's okay to overreach every now and then you don't want to make a habit of it. And we definitely don't want to overtrain throughout this whole period. And I think another thing that doesn't get talked enough about is over racing, racing too much and how, uh, the, the mind, the body, uh, needs a break. And if right. you want to continue to grow, it may mean saying no to some racing and so as I look ahead to 2020 after the 2022 season I don't want to be having conversations with athletes about uh I don't like the word burnout you've heard me say this I, I can't stand that word but I don't I don't want to see athletes race too much and uh, overextend themselves and put too much pressure on their on their bodies and their minds uh, and so saying no, especially the higher you go in the sport, that's going to be a challenge, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, if they're less experienced and they haven't raced a whole lot, they're probably still pretty eager and can handle a lot of racing and they have some growing that they need to do anyway. But even then, you got to be careful to not uh, over race. Totally. Yeah. And I think it comes back to our, our durability point of what you do now will determine how much of a racing load you can absorb both physically and mentally, right? So um, if you are accustomed to doing large amounts of work and you can both continue to do that while you race and improve and be able to absorb the racing in a positive way, then you probably get away with racing a little bit more. But if you are new to the sport or, you know, you're, a time-limited master's athlete is a great example of somebody who could over-race very easily in the beginning part of the season because those races are massive, massive training stress bombs and very different to what you're doing in training. So doing back-to-back -back road races on two, three, four weekends in a row as a master's athlete where your aerobic foundation is limited by like the million things you have to do in your daily life. Um, creates a situation where you're not going to be able to peak for a goal event or get that extra two, three, four percent from those VO2 max workouts. They're just going to bury you. Um, and you can translate the same thing to a junior uh, racer who's got to go to school. The same sense. If you've got 
uh, a 12 hour base season, then you have to be very selective on what races you do and how they fit in towards your actual goal for that season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we should have said this at the beginning. Uh, what we're talking about, it's applicable to mountain bikers and road racers. And, and really, if you're, if you have an, any kind of endurance component with, you know, what you're doing, then these apply. It's not just to, uh, for road racers only. I mean, this is something, you know, the mountain bikers are going to be confronted with the same thing, uh, the same dilemmas, uh, need to work on, uh, the same aspects of their strengths and weaknesses and these energy systems and, and developing that profile to help them be successful. Even though maybe the longest XC race is going to be 90 minutes to two hours. Uh, it's still important, uh, for them to work on these things. And it's just going to make them even more effective because yeah, the, an effort, that is required at a, at a mountain bike race. Yeah. It looks a lot different. It feels a lot different. That's for sure. Than a road race where there is a lot of variability. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of drafting effects, but this applies to both. Well, yeah. And even, I think a lot more so in mountain biking because there is very little, um, recovery time. Your, your downhills where in a road race, you're coasting are, just as challenging as the uphills. So having a large aerobic foundation allows you to recover while you are cornering and looking up the trail and doing those explosive efforts and that two seconds of recovery that you get in a downhill through a corner, whatever it is, is actually more beneficial to somebody who has a larger aerobic foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the the effort level that we're talking about with our long tempo being maximal 90 minutes is something that a time limited athlete can knock out. Yeah, your warm up and cool down is going to make it a two hour total ride. There's not going to be an endurance component to your tempo workout um, in the sense that you're not going to ride two hours afterwards. Um, but these these are exercises that we do with athletes, regardless of the total volume that they can handle. Um, we're just not going to ask someone who does 10 hours a week to do two tempo sessions, two strength endurance sessions and a neuromuscular session within a week because they don't have the, the durability, right? Like on 10 hours a week, you just have to meter your effort and you can still improve at a very consistent rate. It's just different from somebody who has 25 to 30 hours a week to train. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Well, um, man, that's, that's a lot of good information. I think that people can pull from and apply for the next few months. And as we go through these periods, we'll get to that point where we're approaching the race season and that's going to look completely different than what we're talking about now. What we're going to get to a point here soon where we will talk about what to do, what to consider as you're approaching race season, not race season itself, but what are the things to be working on before race season and understand that your, your early season is going to look different than your mid to late season from a strength and, and fitness. Now we're going to, we'll then start talking about true fitness. When we get to that point, how do we increase our fitness and our form right, right. now? We're just talking about muscular endurance and strength, durability, just increasing that capacity to do more work. And then we'll talk about fitness and form and what that will look like as we get closer to the race season. Right. Basically we're talking about everything that happens, uh, before 12 weeks before your goal event. 
You know, those, those last three months look very different depending on what your goal event is, whether it's a mountain bike race, a road race, a crit. Um, but what we're doing right now for most of our athletes looks very foundational and simple and just has a bulk work component that is challenging in its duration and it's just level of focus and daily strain. It's not your VO2 max. It's not your 30 thirties. It's not those high intensity things. Um, and yeah, those, those will come and, and that'll be a fun podcast for a lot of different reasons because oh, yeah. we can talk about having mental breakdowns on the side of the road and <laughs> under fueling your 30 thirties and puking and all the fun. Yeah. The fun stuff that comes with, yeah. uh, going into your, your goal event, uh, after having done a true peak. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good storytelling time because that's when <laughs> we start rethinking our life and like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? This yeah, is, why is uh... it so hard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, uh, I hope you found that valuable and insightful and, uh, and, and be able to put that into practice. If you've got questions, send them our way. Uh, you know, hit us up on Instagram, uh, make comments to our post, uh, email us. We're pretty easy to find. Uh, Zach Gregg and Tim Hall. We both are coaches at Lee's McRae. Uh, we're out there in social media. We're not hiding. We're in plain sight. So hit us up. If you got questions you would like for us to cover, send them our way. Check out our YouTube channel. Listen to us on all of our podcast platforms. If you would, leave a review. Leave a comment. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube, YouTube channel and leave a review on uh, the podcast platforms. It's how we'll get the word out and message out more and get found more easily. So, all right, Zach, another one in the books. Enjoyed it. Woohoo. Thanks. All right. See you soon, listeners.